Thank you, Dan. Thank you, worship band. And uh, it's a joy to be here and worship with you this morning. And we have a special guest uh, that is going to bless us in a special way. Um, this morning, our guest speaker is Brother Brandon Cox. He is the lead pastor of Grace Hills Church here in Rogers, Arkansas. Now, they always say that they're from Bentonville, but now they've been meeting in Rogers for a couple of years. Are you going to say you're from Rogers now? or Sure, whatever. Grace Hills Church of Northwest Arkansas. Uh, that's, that's the way it is along this I-49 corridor. Uh, we've got folks here today that live as far north as Bella Vista and as far south as the south side of Springdale and uh, all points in between, east and west. And um, God is using uh, Brandon and Angie in a special way uh, at Grace Hills. Um, you know, when I, when I grew up here in Northwest Arkansas in Springdale, graduated from high school, in 1991, population of Springdale was 23,000 people. And it was the second biggest of the towns up here at that point. And, you know, now Springdale, the official population is 75, 76, and I don't know what the unofficial population is. Brandon shared during our Sunday school time that there are 1,000 people a month moving in to the I-49 corridor. A thousand people per month. Folks, the fact of the matter is, is we have got to be involved in church planting. And I am so thankful that the BMA of America saw this need and God called Brandon and Angie to, to fill that need. And the fact is, is we need more. And he's going to share a little bit about uh, the Grace Hills journey this morning and He's going to share a little bit about their vision for ministry. And uh, if I may say, I hope that we listen to this vision for ministry and catch a glimpse of what God's doing with them and be inspired to do uh, what God is calling us to do. And Brandon, I'm just really excited to have you uh, here today. And so I'm going to invite you to come and I'm going to pray over you before we begin. Father in heaven, I do thank you for my brother, and I thank you for his friendship for many years, and I thank you for the way that you're using him, and uh, God, I'm just so impressed by you, and thank you for using people who are unworthy, broken, messed up people to do amazing things in your, in your kingdom for your honor and for your glory. And so Father, now I pray for Brandon as he shares your word with us, and I just pray that you would bless him in a special way. Be with the folks at Grace Hills this morning as they're away. And Lord, thank you for this special opportunity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Brother Wade. Good morning, Temple Baptist Church. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to get to sing those songs with you. It's interesting, Come Thou Fount is kind of my favorite life song. Uh, it's words go through my head all the time because I feel prone to wander but God is to be trusted with our hearts, and I love that. And then I was looking just a second ago at um, the, the fine print. I know that you guys all read the fine print at the bottom of the slides uh, when you sing, but when we, were, we spent one year on staff at a church in Southern California, and I met one of Saddleback's young worship pastors and became friends with him, and we had coffee quite a few times. Then he moved away to Nashville to do some writing and his name was Travis Ryan, and he wrote that song that we just sang. So really neat kind of small world thing, and this tremendous, uh, tremendous time so far this morning. It's a real privilege and an honor for me to get to be here with you at Temple today. Uh, I was sharing with some folks earlier, we've been here several times before for ordinations and association meetings. We even came once when uh, our, our church in Bentonville snowed out, and so we brought some folks over here because you guys weren't quite as snowed out, and so you worshiped, and we were here with you, and I love your pastors and your staff, and it's uh, just a, a great thing to be here. I wanted to share with you sort of who we are, and then I want to get into what God has to say about that in His Word and what we're doing together. And as, as Brother Wade said, it is definitely a time in our culture in America, our culture in the world at large, our culture in Northwest Arkansas, when we desperately need the gospel to be more clear and louder than it's ever been. And the primary way that God has given for that to happen is by taking 
people who have been saved, whose lives have been changed together, uh, bringing them into these things that we call churches and using those churches to share the gospel, to serve the community, to tell people about Jesus, and to be a family and a community into which lost and broken people can find their way and find the truth about Christ. So we, uh, I've been a, a pastor for 19 years now, started when I was 19 years old. That was way too young and learned a lot of hard lessons early on and had a couple of uh, difficult experiences early on and actually almost gave up on being a pastor a year into it. And I thought this is just more than I, more than I thought it was going to be. And I I really thought, you know, being a pastor was just you're going to get to preach and visit and serve and everybody's going to be happy with each other all the time because we all just want the gospel to go out. And then I realized the church is actually made up of human beings like me. And so we're messy and we're imperfect and we struggle sometimes to understand each other and, and so forth. But we moved back to Kentucky where I'm from. My, my wife Angela and I, we'd met in high school there. Her father was the pastor of the church there, the only BMA church in all of Kentucky. And we moved back there, and I wasn't going to be a pastor anymore. I was done. I was not going to do this anymore. I'm just going to serve in a second role of some kind. And I started doing youth ministry, and three months later, Pastor Danny resigned and moved to a church in the St. Louis area, and they asked me to step up, and so reluctantly said yes. And then eight wonderful years happened, and God... Uh, did a lot of healing in our hearts. Then we moved to Bentonville, Arkansas and spent five years in Bentonville, not Rogers, and pastored Bethel Baptist Church on the north end of town there. Great church. They just called a new pastor and he's a great guy. And so good things are happening there. At the end of that five years, um, we, we were called away again, kind of surprisingly and unexpectedly, and, and joined the staff of Saddleback Church in Southern California. And it was there that God really began to remind Angie and I of a conversation that had started a decade earlier when her and I talked about church planting. We had, had begun to think about planting a church someday when it was God's timing and God's place and so forth. And we were attending mission symposiums. And so the culture and the atmosphere was something that God used to really put a burden on our hearts for planting more churches in America, planting more churches here stateside, even as God is highly interested in planting churches all over the, the world. And so when that conversation started to come back up and we realized perhaps we've just moved to California as kind of a hub, a layover spot, and God would use the conversations here and the relationships here to kind of send us back uh, somewhere else to plant a church. So our conversations continued and we zeroed in on the one place that felt more like home than any other place. I grew up in Kentucky, spent 28 years there. My wife grew up in Illinois and Texas and all over the place, but no place had felt more like home to us than Northwest Arkansas. And when we thought about this community and we looked at the data on this community and understood what was happening in Northwest Arkansas, there's a, there's a shift that's occurring within this community that is somewhat unprecedented and, and people talk about the growth of the area and they talk about the change that is happening in Rogers and Bentonville and what, what Angie and I saw was that there's also a situation where you have a lot of really good churches that exist in the community. But the population is growing so fast and it's growing with people who come from such different places and different walks of life that it's going to take more local churches, not just some big church, but more churches to connect with those people and be a family of those people, and that those churches probably needed to look a little bit different, not doctrinally, not theologically, but a little bit different culturally in order to reach people from every walk of life. So we moved back here in the summer of 2011 and had our first vision meeting in an office over in Bentonville because we were going to be a Bentonville church, and things just kind of changed a little bit. We're now in location number six, I think. We've moved around quite a bit. That was our way of only attracting really smart people who understood GPS, you know, just keep moving. <laughs> and so we went from 
that office to a hotel, and from the hotel we, we met for a short time at the JBU building that you see from the interstate, and then finally moved over, and in January of 2012, we officially publicly launched uh, as Grace Hills Church in the movie theater next to Belk. That was not our original plan or intention, but we found out it was available. And uh, one of the great things about it was it gave us what I would call a cultural neutral ground that people who either didn't know what church was all about or that had a, a lot of baggage, a lot of negative experiences perhaps, had a, maybe a, a wrong impression of what the church is, weren't necessarily comfortable walking into what might look to them like the traditional church. They knew what it was like to walk into a movie theater. And you smell the buttery popcorn and, 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 and so forth. And so we launched there and found it to be this kind of neutral ground with far fewer barriers. And we've met people in the last four and a half years since we got up and going and launched, we've met people from all over the world, all over the country. Uh, even on our very first Sunday that we ever had a, a vision meeting four and a half years ago, we had people in that meeting, just about 35 people showed up. And out of those 35 people, there were people from Detroit and from Hollywood and from New York City and just all over the country. One family from Boston that had never owned a Bible. And we realized this is Northwest Arkansas. This is Northwest Arkansas. I live just a couple of miles from the first Hindu temple in the state of Arkansas. Now, some of you who've grown up in Rogers and Bentonville area, if I had said to you 30 years ago, you know, someday there's going to be a Hindu temple out on Airport Boulevard. First you'd go, what's Airport Boulevard? You know, and then you'd say, what's a Hindu temple? Uh, things have changed so rapidly around us that, that I think it's necessary for existing churches to think about how do we help church planting movements and multiplication movements to occur and to happen so that uh, new churches that, you know, on average about 42% of people that join a church in its first five years are either unchurched or dechurched. That is, they don't have a relationship with the church anymore, and so almost half of those that connect with a, a new church plant don't have a, a solid relationship with Christ. And knowing that, I would just say that whether we're talking about the Philippines or Northwest Arkansas or Zimbabwe or New Zealand or any of 198 other nations in the world, we need more churches. We need more churches. The church is the beautiful bride of Christ. And the world may not recognize her beauty and her grace, but I think that we need to keep on creating and spawning and multiplying more communities, more church families in which people that are far from God and distant from Jesus can hear the gospel, experience love, know the truth, experience grace, and have their lives changed for eternity. We believe in it so much that we decided we wouldn't just plant a church. We decided from day one it would be a church planting church, that, that we would at every opportunity train up and raise up and send out leaders and teams of people, if at all possible, to go and plant uh, even nearby. And so a, few years, a couple of years ago, we brought a guy on named Michael. He spent a year with us, and we sent him to Siloam Springs, and he's planted Journey Church. They're now meeting in a movie theater and, and seeing about 100 people come every week. So we're going to do that over and over as much as we can possibly do that. And if it kills us, we're okay as long as more churches get planted because for the last 2,000 years, that is how the gospel has gone forward. It, it's through church planting. So I would say it's just a privilege to be a part of something like that, to be in the middle of something like that. And, and it feels different. It seems different than anything uh, that I've ever been a part of. I spent the first 15 years of ministry pastoring and serving established churches um, that, you know, I, I sort of dressed the part and we did what you probably are accustomed to as seeming like church. And there are things about Grace Hills that have made us at times uncomfortable in terms of our willingness to have conversations with people that are far from God, uh, people that don't always necessarily look the part. I'll never forget in one of our early small group meetings at our house, 
we, we had just gotten started and we had some people over for a small group and we were just beginning to kick off our small group ministry. And at the end of a small group meeting, you often go around, does anyone have any prayer requests, anything that you're struggling with, you'd like for us to pray for? And one of the ladies in that group uh, spoke about she's struggling with uh, smoking. She's trying to give up smoking and she smoked that week. And so Angie said, you know, my wife said, yeah, I know that Nicotine is one of the hardest things to give up. And she said, well, it wasn't cigarettes, you know. And then it dawned on us what she'd been smoking. We thought, we're in a very different atmosphere than we've ever been in before. And there are people that need Jesus from every walk of life. So uh, I'm convinced that we need even more than ever before uh, local churches sharing the gospel. And what I really want to spend a lot of time on this morning is the why. Okay. Our journey has been good. It's been blessed. God has rewarded and taken care of us. We, we started with about 35, 40 people. Uh, by the time we launched, we had about 70 or 80, and they just kept coming. And when we got to the movie theater, we kept meeting all kinds of lost people. And a lot of them are getting baptized. They're putting marriages back together and so forth. And we just keep meeting people like that. Two people today are getting baptized at Grace Hills Pastor Danny Kirk is over there preaching and baptizing them. And then we've got about six more that want to be baptized on Easter. I mean, just a, a flow of people that don't know Jesus and they're coming to know Him and lives are being changed. When we moved into uh, the building that we moved into in January on the other side, up on, uh, just off Walnut, since doing that, we've been averaging over 400 in worship every week. And they just are coming from all over the place. And we didn't expect that. And so it dawned on us, man, we leased a building that's too small, and we've, we're, we've signed the line for three years, so we've got to stretch this and make it work. But, but we'll take it. We'll take every opportunity we can to meet someone else that needs to know Jesus. Uh, and we'll keep multiplying as much as we possibly can. Now, that's who we are and, and who we've been. But I really want to talk about why that is so important. Uh, there are people in this community that have lived around churches their whole life, and they've never become a part of one. They live in proximity to the gospel. They could hear the truth of the gospel on any given Sunday if only they would make their way to a local church, but they don't and haven't, and therefore haven't heard the gospel. So, there are all kinds of perceptions that people have about the church. They're good, they're bad, they're ugly, they're everywhere in between. And not only do they have certain perceptions about the church, they have certain perceptions about God, certain perceptions about who Jesus is. I wanted to show you a picture, I hope I included this in the slides, the black and white photo that some of you might recognize, most of you probably will not. That is not Andy Griffith, it is uh, someone else. And if, you, if you, you haven't determined who this is yet, it's one of my favorite shows of all times. It's from The Twilight Zone. It's a, a screen clip from an episode of The Twilight Zone that aired during the 60s when everyone, and I love The Twilight Zone because it shows me the culture of the 60s, when everyone was thinking all the time about nuclear war and aliens. You know? And so that's The Twilight Zone. And in this particular episode, it's called The Little People. And I'm going to spoil it for you. Okay, I'm going to tell you how it ends. And if you haven't seen it yet, you've had 40 years. Okay? Um, it's on Netflix. You can go back and watch it. Um, so the little people. And it's a story of three astronauts who crash land on a planet that seems to be a rocky, barren wasteland. And their ship is damaged. And they have to repair it before they can get off that planet and get to where they need to go. And the astronaut that looks like Andy Griffith, he's a pretty good guy. He just wants to fix the ship. But the other guy, the guy on the right, He's on a power trip. And the reason he's on a power trip is because he's discovered on this planet a civilization. He looked down and almost stepped on them. They're people with buildings and cars and all the things that we are, but they're only one hundredth the size of these astronauts. So he very quickly asserts his power and his authority. He steps on one of their buildings. He shows them who's boss, and the next thing you know, he's making them worship him. They even build a statue of him. Now here's the, the twist at the end. I'm about to ruin it for all of you. But the twist at the end is that you know the, the other astronaut, he fixes the ship and gets out of there. This guy wants to stay where he's treated like a god. And just as they complete the statue of him, 
that they've built in his honor, he, he hears a sound and he looks up and what he sees in the sky is an astronaut 100 times his size who picks him up, accidentally breaks him, story's over. Okay. Now, here's the reason I love that episode. I think that in our culture, that is the perception that many people have of God. That we are just the little people that He made and that He created and that God is not interested in what life is all about for us. I think we live in a culture that does not understand just how personal God is, does not understand just how much God loves us, does not understand just what Jesus came to do. But the good news of the biblical story is that God came to do some absolutely amazing things to reach people and draw them close to Himself. So I want to start out and just kind of define for a second what is this good news? What is this gospel that World Mission Sunday is all about? What are we talking about spreading today? In a culture where people are far from God, what is the good news to our broken culture? I want to read a passage out of Ephesians chapter 1. I am only reading a short portion of a long sentence. Uh, when the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 1, he gave from verse 3 to verse 12 is all one long sentence. I'm just reading a few verses of it because I think it is an overview of essentially all of history. And I want to use that as kind of a springboard to talk about something a little bit bigger. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the Bible says this, Even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do, and it gave Him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His sons, uh, of His Son and forgave our sins. He has showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Let me just point out a phrase for our blessing. He chose, in verse 5, he, had, he decided in advance to adopt us into His own family through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do. Zero in on that for a second. He wanted to do this. And it gave him great pleasure. He wanted to do this, and it gave him great pleasure. Now, my image of God, my understanding of God, is, whether we like it or not, partly shaped by my experiences in life with authority figures. So the way that I relate to my dad, the way that I related to my teachers, the way that I relate to government, all of that gives me a little bit of a picture of what God is like. Now, it, it, maybe it isn't supposed to, but from my perspective, that's what I tend to do. I tend to think of God as the one that I'm relating to who He must be like the other people I've related to. And so somewhere, because of how I grew up, religiously speaking, and, and the, the atmosphere of the church that I grew up in, and then the things that I read and studied early on as an adult Christian, I, over time, accidentally developed a picture of God in which He most of the time is disappointed with me. Now, some of you may, may not identify with that. I tend to think that most of the people in this room have at least been through seasons where that was your perception of God. Now, I would never say that the Bible teaches that He's disappointed in me, but on a day-to-day -day relationship with God basis, I, I tended to kind of perceive that since I couldn't perform and just couldn't be good enough, that God was upset with me all the time about something. But then I look in this passage, and here's what he says. God knows that we are broken, messy sinners, right? He knows we are rebels. We've gone our own way like sheep. We've walked away. He knows that about every last one of us. He created us. He made the rules. 
We broke them. He gave us paradise. We squandered it. I mean, that's who we are with God, right? And God knows this in advance. He already knows how badly I'm going to mess it up. He already knows how messy my life is going to be. He knows in advance that we are going to blow it. But also in advance, before I ever was born, before you were ever thought of, before we ever made all of these terrible mistakes and blew it and rebelled against God, before any of that happened, He decided in advance to go ahead and make us and make a way for us and choose to adopt us into His family through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, my perception might be that God's always disappointed with me. I walk on eggshells with Him. But the truth of Scripture is that He is pleased to adopt us as His children into His family. He is pleased to adopt us as children into His family. I've got three kids. We left them at the other church this morning. I hope some of the adults know that. Um, and didn't, didn't bring them with us, but they're, they're at that age. Our, our daughter's 13, and, and she spoiled us on being parents. When she was a kid, she was so good and sweet and obedient and quiet. And We'd look around and think, what is wrong with all these other parents? They have no clue. You know, it's so easy for us. And then our two little boys came along, and then we go, oh, oh, we get it. We get it now. Uh, what's so tough about this? Now, uh, my kids can be uh, you know, they're boys, and so I'm talking about the little ones especially. It can be wild, right? They can throw things across the room. The other night, we're in the living room, and we had, uh, well, actually, their grandparents had bought them these guns that shoot these balls, which is a smart thing to hand to a five- and two-year-old boy. And so our two-year-old, he gets a little frustrated and just throws the gun straight up in the air, and it comes down and hits the TV, you know, and didn't break. I inspected it very closely, you know. <laughs> Didn't break, but in that moment, I'll tell you what I didn't do. I didn't look at my two-year-old and go, Drew, all you ever do is mess up. I don't want you in my family anymore. You're gone. <laughs> I'm not sure he would have accepted it anyways, you know, strong-willed. I got on to him, but I loved him through it. I'm glad he's my son still. Now, if the TV had broken, I don't know, but, you know... <laughs> It's just the, the risk of breaking. And I love him as my son. I put him to bed that night and prayed with him, kissed him on the forehead, in spite of the fact that he tried to damage one of the American family's most prized possessions. So we love them anyways. So you may have walked in, and maybe you're going to leave here with nothing else than that. Missions is still a new concept, but you needed this basic thing. That God is not just all the time looking at you with great disappointment in His eyes. Instead, hear what this Scripture says. He is pleased. It makes Him happy and filled with joy. It is a good thing in God's heart that you, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, can be adopted as His own child into His own family. Now, that's good news for us today, right? Let me give you a summary statement of that on this next slide. God created you so that He could love you and save you, and make you holy. That's why He created you. So that He could love you, and save you, and make you holy. He didn't create you so that you could live apart from Him and do your own thing. He made you so that He could love you. So that you would be the object of His love so that He could save you, so that He could make you holy, He would change your life, and He does all of that through a relationship with Jesus Christ. But, but hear those words, God created you so that He could love you. And guess what? The same is true for everyone else in this community and everyone else around the world. And there are people today who are far from God. And what I mean by that is, they don't have a concept of God. They don't have a knowledge of God. They don't have experience with God. And their lives often show it, right? Everyone from uh, the, the pagan who has no concept of Jesus or of the deity that, that we know from Scripture and instead worship idols and so forth, all the way to the terrorist who has been taught nothing but hate his whole life, all of them ultimately were created so that God could love them and save them and make them holy if they would just come and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. So there's a whole world out there full of people who are just as lost as we are 
until they meet Jesus, and just as loved as we are. And one of the biggest barriers that we have to get past if we're ever going to take the good news further and plant more churches is that the people on the outside of this building and on the outside of every church building are just as desperate for the love of God as we are in here. But, but guess what? You just got to hear from Scripture today that God loves you. From a perfect Bible, you got the message this morning that God made you so that He could love you. And even though that's true of people on the outside of these walls, they've not heard it. They weren't here. They couldn't say amen or even understand it because they didn't hear the message. And many of them, thousands of them, potentially tens of thousands of Northwest Arkansans, as the population continues to grow, have never really experienced it. Even many of whom grew up in some kind of church, I would venture to say, have not heard the biblical gospel. The good news about Jesus' blood and His death and God's love for them and the payment that He has made and the hope that is offered through a relationship with Him. There are tens of thousands of people living around us who haven't heard yet. Now, the most dangerous thing that I think we can do, the thing that will just put a period on the end of all of this and just stop the story is for us to go, well, they ought to come here. They ought to find their way in here. I mean, we've got a red brick building on the corner of New Hope and Dixieland. It's a busy intersection, thousands of cars every day. We've got a sign out there. And, and we got this amazing, uh, good-looking pastor, you know, and the, they should just make their way here. If they would just do that, then the world could be saved. But here's the thing, and this is what I want to dig into a little bit. God doesn't seem to approach the gospel that way. Instead, from beginning to end, what I think we see is God in hot pursuit of the people whom He loves. You know, Paul said it this way, before the world began, He chose us to be holy, and, and He's made a way in, in Jesus Christ, but really all of history is God pursuing His people. I want to walk through that briefly. And there's a lot to say, but you know, Wade told me I've got to 1 o'clock, so you just bear with me. But I kind of want to like do the whole Bible this morning, okay? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And He made it good for us. He made it to feed us and to clothe us. And He made it to shelter us. And He made it so that we could breathe the air. I love understanding more about the universe at large and how huge it is. Because every time I learn a little bit more about the huge universe in which we live, I realize how special it is that on this tiny speck in the middle of it all, we've got just the right mixture of air and water and, and food and everything that we need to keep surviving day in and day out. That in and of itself is amazing, right? And He gave us a beautiful world because He loves us. A beautiful world filled with food and clothing and shelter, all the things, both the plants and the animals that we would get to eat. And, and some of you are thinking, well, yeah, but we shouldn't eat the animals because that's mean. So you just eat the plants. You're stealing all the animals' food supply. So you don't love them as much as you think. So, you know... So God gives all of this to us because He loves us. And He made paradise. And the first people blow it, right? Adam and Eve, they break the rules and they descend into sin and the rest of the human race is plunged into depravity and sin and distance from God. And that's where we're at. We're lost from that moment on. So what does God do? Well, right there in Genesis chapter 3, I mean, before we even get out of the garden, He's already promising them that while you're going to have to face a judgment for your sin and your experience, the hardness of the earth, and you're going to go through death, every last one of you, I am someday, through your seed, going to bring a deliverer here. He will die for you. He will rise for you. Not all of that was spoken there, but he was foreshadowing the Messiah, Jesus. And so Adam and Eve named their kids such. They, they first thought Cain was like the hope of the world, and that didn't turn out so well. Um, and then when they named Seth, we, we kind of get an understanding that they, they began to understand that all this wasn't going to happen immediately. It was going to take some time. And so they, 
named Seth accordingly, and Eve, in fact, is described as a mother of all living. And so they begin to produce, and they have kids, and they have grandkids, and so forth and so on. And in the early chapters of Genesis, you see civilization developing. And chapter 5 is kind of the happy chapter of the Bible. Everybody dies, right? So-and-so had a son, and, and then he died, and then he had a son, and then he died, and, it's, and he died, and he died. And it's a, it's a great feel-good portion of Scripture. And so he died. But at the end of that chapter, Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. So for three chapters of the Bible, you get that in, in, in the middle of humankind blowing it and rebelling against God, he zeroes in on this family and he says, while I destroy the world underwater for its sins and its crimes, I am determined to do what I set out to do, to have a people whom I could love, so I'm going to save this family. And when the water dries up, there's Noah and his family, and they aren't perfect. We see that in the last days of Noah's life, but there they are, and he tells them to go and repopulate the world. And he even gives them this promise, and he sets a bow in the sky. Now, as a kid, you see that on flannel graph, right? And so you get this certain image, this certain picture of what the rainbow story is all about. Now, when, I'm just going to be honest with you. When I was a teenager, I thought, well, that's very convenient. It's a nice little Sunday school story, but that must be about all there is to it, until I realized what the bow is. That from eternity, when God made the universe and all of its physical laws, God decided that when you shoot water through light, it would be refracted in such a way that at the right angle, you would see this rainbow. Why is it a bow? Well, when God is communicating the gospel to a primitive guy like Noah, who, you know, they didn't have books back then. It's, it's a primitive culture. And when he says to Noah, I'm going to keep on saving people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accomplish this mission. And as my promise to you that you're going to be saved, here's my bow in the sky. Now, what's a bow to a primitive guy? It's a weapon. That's all that we know it as. And this particular weapon, this particular bow, it's aimed at heaven. It's God having turned the weapon upon Himself, saying, I'm going to absorb the punishment for you, just as He had spoken to Eve. And so from there, Noah's family, they begin to spread and to populate and to travel all over the earth. And then, then they go pagan again, because that's what we people do, right? We blow it, we go pagan. And in the middle of all that paganism, He zeroes in on another family, and He taps Abraham on the shoulder, and He says, I want you, and I want your your." closest kin to leave here and go to the promised land, and I'm going to make of you a great nation, greater than all the other nations of the earth, and he gives them a promise, and he says, through your seed, ringing back to what he said to Eve, through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. In other words, someday, a Messiah is coming, a Savior is coming, a Deliverer is coming. So Abraham has Isaac, who has Jacob, who has Joseph, and all of his brothers, and one of Joseph's brothers, we know more about Joseph because more is written about him, but one of his brothers was Judah, and Judah was one of those guys that did all kinds of things that, that would not make a parent very proud, okay? But out of Judah, God says, I'm going to someday continue this line, and one day, a Savior, a Deliverer, is going to be raised up out of the line of Judah, and He's going to be the Savior of the world. He just keeps whispering His promise to every point in human history. And so, from Joseph's era, they find themselves in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. And God says, I'm not going to let Egypt snuff out the possibility of me bringing a Savior into this world. So He taps Moses on the shoulder. Is I want you to lead these people out of slavery and into freedom so that we can get back to the promised land and continue the mission of moving our way toward the Messiah being born someday. So they do. They escape Egyptian slavery. He spends 40 years in the wilderness cleansing and purging them of their sinful tendencies and habits and their stubbornness, and he eventually gets them all the way to the promised land. And Moses turns everything over to Joshua, and Joshua marches across the Jordan takes down Jericho, and then eventually Ai, after a little hiccup or two, and they begin to occupy the promised land. Why? So that someday a Savior could come. When Joshua, they move across the Jordan River, they stop, and Joshua says, hey, before we go any further, let's read the law. Let's read everything we've got. Let's read the promise of a deliverer again. And so they read it. And they set themselves. Now the problem with Joshua, even though he was a great hero in the Bible, he didn't raise up a protege, per se. So after Joshua, we descend into the period of the judges. And in the judges, it's up and down. It's a roller coaster. 
It's the roller coaster you and I sometimes find ourselves on, where we walk away from God and do our own thing, and then you know punishment comes, and we repent, and we run back to God, and then we get comfortable, and we begin to rebel again. And they went through that over and over and over. And there were several times, if you read the book of Judges, it's a fascinating book, several times in the book of Judges where the existence of the Israelites was threatened with annihilation by the Philistines, but each time God would raise up a judge to lead them into battle and deliver them from the Philistines. Why? Because someday a Savior is going to come out of these people. So he steps in and he keeps whispering his promise. Someday I'm going to bring a Savior to you. So you get past the judges and you come into the era of the kings and the kings was not necessarily what God intended for His people and His relationship with them, but they demand a king, so He gives them a king. The first two kings are Saul and David, and they are the antithesis of each other. And Saul is one of those guys that looks presidential. He's taller than everyone. He's more fierce than everyone. He's got a lot of bravado and talks really tough. I'm not going to just say that people who are like that aren't necessarily qualified to be president. I'm just saying, I mean, king. Uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> from him you also get David. And the picture, the contrast between the two is very interesting, right? Because Saul is a people pleaser. His whole ministry as king is, how do I keep all these people happy? And if they're happy with me, I'm okay. I don't care what God thinks. I care what they think. And then David comes along and he is just the opposite. And David is concerned with what God thinks. That doesn't prevent him from messing up. He commits adultery, conspiracy to commit murder. He commits murder. He deceives the nation. He sins radically, right? But then he writes Psalm 51 and Psalm 34, Psalms of repentance in which he again proclaims the gospel, the good news. I've blown it. But there's a deliverer, and I know that. And so he's called a man after God's own heart. And he goes on to write most of the Psalms that we read today. So God used the period of the kings to whisper to his people, I am loving you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to keep on loving you. You just keep watching. You get all the way down in the kings, and you find yourself on a roller coaster again. Because that's what people do. That's what we human beings do. And the kings, you have some terrible ones like Ahab and his wife Jezebel. You have some good kings like Jehoshaphat and others. One of the last ones is Josiah. And at eight years old, he becomes king. At, at age 16, they're doing some remodeling in the temple. And they discover in the wall an old scroll. And they pull it out. And when he realizes what it is, this is the law of God. You know what he does? He says, let's read it. We need to hear this. And so there, just before they go into captivity in Babylon and Assyria, the people of God hear again God's promise, I will deliver you. I will deliver you. I'm coming after you. I'm coming for you. And from those kings, we enter into the times of, of you know, Babylon and Assyria and captivity. And in those moments of captivity come along Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all of the other prophets, Daniel in Babylon who speaks so highly of uh, what is going to happen someday starting with Jerusalem and so forth. And God whispers through those prophets the promise that someday I am going to come and save you and show you my love. It's what I've been determined to do from day one. This is good news and I will do anything to keep it alive. And so against all odds, the lineage continues. And He just keeps whispering His love to radically lost people. Then you get to these 400 silent years. Malachi closes, and we get nothing. Things happen in Israel. There's the Maccabean revolt, and we get Hanukkah from that. So there's, there's interesting things that go on, but there's no prophecy. There are no angelic revelations. And then all of a sudden, God begins to revive again the message of the Messiah by tapping on the shoulder a young lady from Nazareth named Mary and her soon-to-be husband Joseph and says to them, uh, I'm choosing you. You're going to carry this great burden. You're going to bring my child into this world. It's time. And he speaks through John the Baptist about Jesus coming. And little Jesus is born in this world and God has finally come after us. And He is fulfilling His promise. And here is the seed that He promised to Eve. 
Here's the seed that he mentioned to Abraham that would bless all the families of the earth. Here is the seed that David wrote about in Psalm 22 and other places. Here is the seed that the prophets kept mentioning that Isaiah said would be born of a virgin and so forth. Here he is right before us, God on earth, God incarnate. He has come to love us. And so Jesus lives 30 years on this earth and then starts His ministry, gets baptized, and now His mission is to send this good news, this gospel, everywhere on earth. And so, He picks some disciples. Now, if me and you were picking the early church leaders, we wouldn't have picked the same guys that Jesus did. I would look for who's got the brightest robe and the cleanest fingernails, right? They're bound to be the most equipped to share the gospel. Jesus, He does things that are just... Uh, strange to us. He picks Matthew, tax collector, works for Rome. Okay, Then he picks Simon the Zealot, who hates Rome, and will do anything he can to overthrow Rome, puts them in a room together and says, okay, you guys are going to leave my church. He picks Peter. Any of you identify with Peter ever? Like, uh, you put your foot in your mouth so far. And, and that's Peter. He's impulsive. He's impetuous. Peter is just, he, he's unpredictable. He is not the guy that you want standing up as your spokesman because you just never know what's going to come out of his mouth, right? And then you got James and John. Now, you know John because you've read his writings. You know him as the gospel of love. But when we first meet John, he's more like, um, he's more like the guys that hang around the mob boss, and say, you want me to take care of them? Uh, that's, that's how James and John are. They see someone else doing a miracle that uh, they're not associated directly with Jesus, and Jesus, you want us to call down thunder? We'll kill them right now. I mean, that's who Jesus is calling together. He says, I want you guys to lead my church. This ragtag bunch of misfits, messy, broken people. And Jesus looks at each one of them and says, I'm bringing you here for a reason. And so he raises them up as a church and he says, it's time for us to tell everybody about the good news. They don't get it. He goes all the way to the cross and dies for our sins and they still don't get it. When the resurrection occurs, they get it. When he spends time with them as the resurrected Jesus, then they get it. And a couple of things happen. First of all, Jesus himself dies on the cross for our sin. There has never been a more clear revelation of the love and the pursuit of God than what happened on the cross. Jesus was the gospel, the good news, on display for us, and the whole world watched Him die. That's who He is and who He was and who He will be. And then those disciples, this, this bunch of hooligans that Jesus has transformed, all of a sudden, when they meet the resurrected Jesus, are so convinced and so fired up and so passionate and so determined to get the gospel further that they all go to their deaths for it. John is the only one accepted and he dies an old man under persecution. All the rest are crucified or they are stoned to death or they are beheaded for the gospel. Even the Apostle Paul who travels the Roman roads and takes the Greek language and writes the scriptures on papyrus and you know God keeps using every available means to, to get His message out to people. I love you. I'm coming after you. I'm going to save you. That's why I made you. And, and even at the cost of those lives He continues sharing the good news further. And then a few thousand years later, an amazing thing has happened. From Paul's journeys across the Roman roads all the way to, uh, to Rome and beyond as the gospel began to splinter its way out from Rome, you, you can kind of follow some interesting tracks down through history and wind up in Rogers, Arkansas at Temple Baptist Church where all of that that we just said leads to this moment, God telling you, I made you so I could love you. I know you're lost, but my son came to die for you. I want you in my family. And there are people in Rogers and in Bentonville and all around us that don't look churchy. Might not fit in if they walked in here, but God loves them. He sent His Son for them. Wants them to know that He created them so He could love them so He could save them, so He could make them holy. World Mission Sunday is not about a denominational program or a special church emphasis. 
It is about the eternal purposes of God in bringing people to Himself through Jesus Christ. And we are in a desperate struggle to get the gospel through to this current age and this current culture. I hope, if nothing else, you've gotten a different perspective. Just You've backed up and you've realized, man, uh, what's happening right now with this very interesting season in American history and politics. And, you know, if you watch the news yesterday, it's an interesting weekend. I mean, I'm surprised you came here because there are presidential candidates elsewhere. and You came here for me, so thank you for that. But uh, I'm not even running anything. You, you can't vote. But in the middle of all that, you can back up and say, from eternity's point of view, there's still an even bigger story than Trump, Cruz, Rubio, Sanders, Clinton. They're just like little pieces of this big, huge thing that God is doing to draw lost people to Himself. And guess what? In the midst of that huge story, we're going to zoom in with a microscope for a second and realize God wants to use you. You. He used Eve. He used Abraham. He used Moses. He used David. He's using people today, millions of them, as His missionary force. He wants to use you. In other words, here's my challenge, because I know that uh, I'm assuming an offering is still on the way for World Mission Sunday, right? We're going to do that, so you're going to give. And maybe in the middle of this message, you thought, I can give one more dollar now that I know how big this is for the kingdom's sake, and so you can give to missions and do it with a sense of pleasure that God is going to save people through it, and that is awesome. But I'll tell you something that's an even more important challenge than that. That when you leave here, you leave knowing that you will bump into people at the gas station today, and at a restaurant today, and in your workplace this week, and in your neighborhood this week, and in your school system this week, who don't know that God is pursuing them with love that He wants them in His family. And you as Christians, you get to let them know what that family looks like. You can be really grumpy and grouchy and upset and down and the world's falling apart and the sky's falling because things aren't going my way politically or educationally or work-wise or whatever it may be. Or you can say, God loves me, loves you, sent Jesus for you, and He is determined to save you and change you and make you holy. And you get to have a part in that every time you share God's love with other people. Okay? Let's bow our heads real briefly. I just want to ask you two questions real quick. One is this. Did you know? I mean, with your head bowed, did you know, did you realize that God loved you that much? Maybe you grew up in church and you've heard it your whole life, but just haven't realized how much God loves you. Would you just right now Hey, God, I, I trust that you love me. I don't feel it all the time, but I trust it. And the second question is, did you realize you had such a big part to play that the gospel getting out, you have a role in that? That every time you share it, every time you love people in Jesus' name, every time you give to missions, every time you show up and serve at church, you are part of the story of God going after more lost people for Himself. Father, I ask You right now to just burden us and lead us to respond according to Your will, according to Your good pleasure. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Jesus. May we tell more people about Him than ever before. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.